Who is Jesus Christ? Was he simply a man who started a movement, or is he God? What would happen to the American religious culture if they found that the God they know and worship does not exist? The truth of such a matter could be devastating to millions of devout believers. Turner Walnitsky Publishing is pleased to bring you a unique event. Recorded here for the first time in history is a nationally broadcast debate regarding the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Simply man or simply God? Will the real Jesus please stand up? Dr. John Dominic Crossan, founder and co-director of the Jesus Seminar, and Dr. William Lane Craig, apologist, philosopher, and author of Reasonable Faith, will engage each other in this debate moderated by William F. Buckley, Jr., founder and editor of National Review magazine. Join us now at the historic Moody Memorial Church in Chicago as National Radio Talk Show host Dick Staub delivers the opening address. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We gather here tonight in this auditorium and across America through the Salem Radio Network to ask a fundamental question. Who is Jesus? Or put in colloquial terms, will the real Jesus please stand up? Some of you may be wondering why we're even asking who Jesus is. Well, on a certain level, every generation must rediscover Jesus for itself. This is not your father's Oldsmobile. This is not your Uncle Olaf's Volvo, are phrases that come to mind. But tonight's debate is not a subjective one. We're not asking who Jesus is to you personally. Our debate tonight goes much deeper than that to the foundational issue of the historical Jesus. Who is the Jesus of history? It is the quest for this historical Jesus and the differing views regarding how to find him that bring us here tonight. This debate does not take place in an ideological vacuum. While for many of you listening tonight, the issues, terms, and methodologies will be new, in fact, the issues in this debate emerge from an ongoing contemporary dialogue, primarily among New Testament scholars, triggered by Albert Schweitzer's book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, written in 1906. This dialogue reveals disagreement on several critical issues. One, the dating and historical reliability of the New Testament documents. Is what we read in the New Testament theology, or is it a true historical account, or both? Was the New Testament written soon after Jesus' death, or much later, with the result being an embellishing of the historical record by the emerging church? Two, the exclusivity and reliability of the New Testament canon. What is the relevance of extra-canonical documents in our quest for the Jesus of history? Texts like the Gospel of Thomas discovered at Nag Hammadi. Three, the nature and verifiability of miracles viewed through the lens of the modern scientific age. Did the miracles described in the New Testament really take place? Or are events like the resurrection, in the best case, unverifiable and highly unlikely, or in the worst case, mythological? Four, the nature of knowing. What methodologies should a historian use to reconstruct an accurate history? 
How does the historian in the case of Jesus balance text, anthropology, Greco-Roman and Jewish history to understand what really happened in the first century? And for those philosophers among us, what epistemology drives us in discerning the truth? And fifth, the nature of Christianity itself is involved in this debate. Can one really separate the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith? And what are the consequences of such a separation? The results of this academic inquiry into the life of Jesus are increasingly trickling down to everyday people like you and me, in film and in general market books. We are hearing that some scholars say Jesus is simply an intriguing first century Jewish teacher, a social revolutionary, the founder of another religion taking its place among many others, a Jesus whose life story was mythologized by his followers. We hear that scholars have concluded that the virgin birth is a myth and that the resurrection never happened. Many Christians on hearing these reports of the experts said are asking, how does this fit with what I know of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered, was buried, and the third day rose again according to the scriptures, who will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. These Christians say, Jesus called me to deny myself and to take up a cross and follow him. And many people have taken that literally. They have been martyred. They have died for this Jesus. And many more are living for this Jesus yet today. They are asking, is my faith in this Jesus in vain? So I'm sure all of us here tonight will agree that there really is no more significant question to ask than who is Jesus? Will the real Jesus please stand up? One concluding comment, if tonight's debate is somewhat confusing to you, I would encourage you to remember the words of one of my favorite theologians, the wise and witty Mark Twain, who once said, it's not what I don't understand about Jesus that bothers me, it's what I do understand about Jesus that bothers me. In just a moment, we will be introduced to the participants in this debate. But first, it gives me real pleasure to introduce to you the moderator of tonight's debate, William F. Buckley, Jr. William F. Buckley has been called the patron saint of conservatism. He is the founder and editor of National Review magazine, the host of Firing Line seen on PBS. His syndicated column appears in 300 newspapers nationwide. His best-selling books include God and Man at Yale, and Gratitude, Reflections on What We Owe Our Country, and his most recent book of fiction, Brothers No More, published by Doubleday. He is the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including the prestigious Presidential Medal of Freedom. He is often quoted, one of my favorites being, I'd rather entrust the government of the United States to the first 400 people listed in the Boston Telephone Directory 
than to the faculty of Harvard University. <laughs> he brings to tonight's debate a devout Christian faith, a keen mind and wit, and a wealth of experience. Will you join me in welcoming William F. Buckley, Jr.? Thank you, Mr. Staub, ladies and gentlemen. My, my assignment uh, tonight is to introduce the principals in this uh, discussion and to moderate their exchange. <clears throat> I will, as best I can, ask for elucidation when I think it necessary or interesting. What could be more interesting than the subject they will discuss, namely, as they put it in the program, the historicity of Jesus, that is to say, the factual knowledge of his life on earth. The sponsors of um, the exchange have circulated a few sentences by the theologian George Ladd. They are, I think, worth contemplating. Uh, he wrote, The uniqueness and the scandal of the Christian religion rests in the mediation of revelation through historical events. Christianity is not just a, a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It is rooted in real events of history. To some people, this is uh, scandalous because... It means the truth of Christianity is inexorably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, uh, Christianity would be false. This, however, is what makes Christianity unique, because unlike other world religions, modern man has a means of actually verifying Christianity's truth by historical evidence. So I proceed with the introductions uh, what one might designate as a skeptic is John Dominic uh, Crossan. Dr. Crossan was born in Ireland, where he went to high school, but he came to the United States to study philosophy and theology at Stonebridge Priory, the, the major seminary of the Servites, a Roman Catholic religious order in Lake Bluff, uh, Illinois. He returned to Ireland to do graduate work at the Maynooth College, the theological seminary of the National University of Ireland in Kildare, where he took a doctorate in divinity. Dr. Crossan did uh, more postdoctoral work at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome, where he got yet another degree. <clears throat> he went on to do archaeological and biblical research in the École Biblique in Jerusalem. Since 1969, he has uh, been associated uh, primarily with uh, DePaul University in Chicago, where he served as professor in the Department of Religious Studies, now emeritus. He has published widely on the subject here in discussion. His books uh, include Who Killed Jesus, Exposing the Roots of Anti-Semitism, the Gospel Story of the Death of Jesus. In 1994, The Essential Jesus, Again Jesus, A Revolutionary Biography. And finally, The Historical of Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant. Dr. William uh, Lane Craig is a professor of theology, emeritus, uh, and, no, and, and currently at Emory University in Atlanta, Dr. Craig uh, attended Wheaton College, where he did a major in communications. From there to the University of Birmingham in England, where he got his doctorate in philosophy. And after that to Munich, to the university where he was awarded a doctorate in theology. He's a prolific uh, scholar. I note that in 1994 he published The Special Theory of Relativity, and theories of divine eternity. 
creation and Big Bang cosmology. More recently, middle knowledge and Christian exclusivism. And he's at work right now on three scholarly explorations, one on theism and physical cosmology, another on tense and the new B theory of language. And then the new B theory is two quoque argument that I want to see. And of course, he is the author of the book Assessing the New Testament Evidence for the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus. Gentlemen. program, you should know that um, what we're going to have is uh, 18 minutes from Dr. Craig, followed by 18 minutes from Dr. Crossan, followed by rebuttals of nine minutes uh, each. That will be followed by a 40-minute joint uh, uh, exchange in which I will participate, and the end of the evening will be five minutes for each of us as a, in, in the way of a final statement, there will be breaks here and there which uh, you'll be made uh, privy to. If uh, halfway through Dr. Crossan's uh, speech he disappears in smoke, you will know that Jesus has cleared his throat. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Craig, welcome here. Good evening. As we near the end of the 20th century, Jesus of Nazareth continues to exert his power of fascination over the minds of men and women. But who was Jesus, really? Was he, as the Gospels portray him, God incarnate? Or was he merely, in Professor Crossan's words, a peasant Jewish cynic? In tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two main contentions. Number one. The real Jesus rose from the dead in confirmation of his radical personal claims to divinity. And number two, if contention one is false, that is, if Jesus did not rise, then Christianity is a fairy tale which no rational person should believe. Let's look then at that first major contention. Did the real Jesus rise from the dead? in confirmation of his radical, personal claims to divinity. First of all, contrary to Dr. Crossan, the majority of New Testament critics today agree that the historical Jesus deliberately stood and spoke in the place of God himself. The German theologian Horst Georg Pohlmann reports, today there is virtually a consensus that Jesus came on the scene with an unheard of authority namely with the authority of God, with the claim of the authority to stand in God's place and speak to us and to bring us to salvation. With regard to Jesus, there are only two possible modes of behavior, either to believe that in him God encounters us or to nail him to the cross as a blasphemer. There is no third way. Jesus' radical personal claims are blasphemous if they are not true. 
But the earliest followers of Jesus gave a good reason for thinking his claims to be true, namely his resurrection from the dead. As the great systematic theologian Wolfhard Pallenberg explains, the resurrection of Jesus acquires such decisive meaning, not because someone or anyone has been raised from the dead, but because it is Jesus of Nazareth whose execution was instigated because he had blasphemed against God. The resurrection can only be understood as the divine vindication of the man who was rejected as a blasphemer. Thus, the key to answering the question of who the real Jesus was lies in how we assess the resurrection of Jesus. Let me share with you then four facts which are established by the consensus of scholarship today. These provide adequate inductive grounds for inferring Jesus' resurrection. Fact number one, after his crucifixion, Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in his personal tomb. This fact is highly significant because it means the location of Jesus' tomb was known. In that case, it becomes inexplicable how belief in his resurrection could arise and flourish in the face of a tomb containing his corpse. New Testament researchers have established this first fact on the basis of the following evidence. One, Jesus' burial is attested in the very old tradition quoted by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians. Two, the burial is part of very old source material used by Mark in writing his gospel. Three, as a member of the Jewish court that condemned Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is unlikely to be a Christian invention. Four, the burial story itself lacks any traces of legendary development. And five, no other competing burial story exists. For these and other reasons, the vast majority of New Testament critics concur that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in his own tomb. According to the late John E. T. Robinson of Cambridge University, the burial of Jesus is one of the most certain facts about the historical Jesus. Fact number two. On the Sunday following the crucifixion, the tomb of Jesus was found empty by a group of his women followers. Among the reasons which have led most scholars to this conclusion are the following. One, the empty tomb story is part of the very old source material used by Mark. Two, the old tradition cited by Paul in 1 Corinthians implies the fact of the empty tomb. Three, the story is simple and lacks signs of legendary embellishment. Four, the fact that women's testimony was worthless in first century Palestine counts in favor of the women's role in discovering the empty tomb. And five, the earliest Jewish allegations that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body itself presupposes that the body was in fact missing from the tomb. I could go on, but I think that this is sufficient to indicate why, in the words of Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. Fact number three. 
On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. This is a fact that is almost universally acknowledged by New Testament scholars today for the following three reasons. One, the list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances, which is quoted by Paul and vouchsafed by his personal acquaintance with the people involved, guarantees that these appearances occurred. These included appearances to Peter, the twelve disciples, the five hundred brethren, and James. Two, the appearance traditions in the Gospels provide multiple independent attestation of these appearances. And three, researchers have noticed signs of historical credibility in specific appearances. For example, the unexpected activity of the disciples fishing prior to Jesus' appearance by the Lake of Tiberias, or the otherwise inexplicable conversion of James, Jesus' younger brother. The late Norman Perrin, a New Testament scholar at the University of Chicago, summed up the consensus of scholarship with these words. The more we study the tradition with regard to the appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear upon which they are based. Finally, fact number four. The original disciples believed that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every reason not to. Think of the situation the disciples faced following the crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead. And Jews had no belief in a dying, much less a rising, Messiah. Number two, according to Jewish law, Jesus' execution as a criminal showed him out to be a heretic, a man literally under the curse of God. Three, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead before the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples believed in and were prepared to go to their deaths for the fact of Jesus' resurrection. C.F.D. Mole of Cambridge University concludes that we have here a belief which nothing in terms of prior historical influences can account for, apart from the resurrection itself. Now, Dr. Crossan realizes that once you agree to these four facts, namely Jesus' burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of his empty tomb, his resurrection appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief, then it's very difficult to deny that the resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation. So he finds himself driven to deny all four of these facts. Instead, he believes that, one, Jesus' corpse was thrown into the common graveyard reserved for criminals and probably eaten by dogs. Two, the women's visit to the empty tomb was a fabrication made up by Mark. Three, the disciples never experienced any appearances of Jesus. And four, the disciples never really believed in the literal resurrection of Jesus at all. Now, at face value, it seems pretty implausible that on every one of these points, the consensus of scholarship should be wrong and Dr. Crossan be right. And that impression is confirmed when we ask, 
what evidence he has for denying these four facts. What you discover is that Dr. Crossan has virtually no positive evidence for his theory. Rather, his conclusions are determined by his presuppositions. But these presuppositions are so bizarre, so implausible, that no confidence can be reposed in conclusions drawn from them. Let me surface then just four of Dr. Crossan's presuppositions. First, he thinks that the so-called Gospel of Peter, which is almost universally acknowledged to be a second century forgery based on the four Gospels, actually contains the original account of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that the Gospel accounts are based on it. No major New Testament scholar agrees with this view. Second, he believes that the Gospel of Mark is based on a prior secret Gospel of Mark, which contained certain erotic elements which the Biblical Mark found unsavory. Again, all but a handful of scholars agree that if such a document ever existed, it was a secondary forgery based on the four Gospels. Third, he assumes that there existed an early Christian community which, and I quote, had so much faith in the historical Jesus that they were constantly inventing more and more of it all the time on the basis of Old Testament stories. British New Testament scholar Thomas Wright has called this the most threadbare part of Dr. Crossan's case, since the evidence points to precisely the opposite conclusion. Finally, Dr. Crossan has a serious problem. He's a naturalist. That is, he comes to the table already assuming that miracles are impossible. He states, God does not act directly, physically, in the world. So, in his book, Jesus, Dr. Crossan writes, I do not think that anyone, anywhere, at any time, brings dead people back to life. Of Jesus healing the leper, he says, I presume that Jesus, who did not and could not cure that disease, or any other one, healed the poor man by refusing to accept the disease's ritual uncleanness. And of Jesus casting out demons, he says, I myself do not believe that there are personal supernatural spirits. Note that these statements, I think, I presume, I believe, are just expressions of opinion. They're presuppositions which Dr. Crossan begins with. Well, if you begin your inquiry by presupposing naturalism, then of course you're going to come out with a naturalistic Jesus. The whole enterprise is question-begging. Thus, because of these false presuppositions, Dr. Crossan's picture of Jesus is simply not true. Thomas Wright says of Dr. Crossan's book, The Historical Jesus, that it is learned, inventive, and readable. But unfortunately, and I quote, it is almost entirely wrong. Similarly, the prominent Canadian scholar Ben Meyer praises the book for its readability and rapid pace, but says, as historical Jesus research, it is unsalvageable. According to Howard Clark Key of Boston University, 
Its conclusions are prejudicial and peripheral, not a substantive development in responsible scholarly study of the historical Jesus. In summary, there are good historical grounds for affirming that Jesus rose from the dead in confirmation of his radical personal claims. And Dr. Crossan's denial of this fact is based on idiosyncratic presuppositions which no other serious New Testament critic accepts. That brings us to our second contention. If Jesus did not rise in confirmation of his claims, Christianity is a fairy tale which no rational person should believe. This point seems pretty obvious. As the Apostle Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus wasn't who the Gospels say he was, then believing in him would be just as silly as believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. We might believe in what these mythical figures represent, say, the spirit of giving in the case of Santa Claus, but we wouldn't believe in Santa Claus himself. Similarly, if Jesus was just a social revolutionary, then we might believe in some of the things he stood for, say, universal human rights. But we wouldn't believe in him. In particular, we would not worship him. We wouldn't pray to him or trust our lives to him or think he loves us. Otherwise, we would either be worshiping and praying to a dead man, which is literally idolatry, or else be worshiping and praying to a figment of our imagination, which is self-delusion. Now, as I say, this seems to me to be just common sense. Yet, incredibly, Dr. Crossan thinks that we should just go on worshiping Christ and going to church and so forth, even though the historical Jesus wasn't at all what the church says he was. Dr. Crossan says that regardless of what the historical facts are, the Christian affirms by faith that Jesus is divine. And so, for him, Jesus is divine. If you just believe hard enough, it somehow becomes true. Now, Dr. Crossan's view on this matter are not original. Another famous person said much the same thing. He said, all it takes is faith and trust. Oh, and just a little bit of pixie dust. Now, think of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. You can fly. You can fly. Come on, everybody. Here we go. Off to Neverland. May I submit to you, may I submit to you that Peter Pan theology, however charming and erudite, is just irrational. Any interpretation of reality, not in accord with the facts about reality, is just a fairy tale, which no rational person should believe. It is not a rational thing to do, to worship and pray to somebody who isn't really there. Or to think that he is there, no matter what the facts, just because you believe in him. Fortunately, we have no need to engage in such theological salvage operations. The essential historical facts undergirding Jesus' resurrection are recognized as well established by the majority of biblical critics. The Christ of faith 
who lives in my heart today is the same person who once walked the shores of Galilee, hung on a Roman cross, and rose triumphantly from the tomb for our salvation. Thank you, Dr. Craig. We'll have a short break and then proceed uh, with Dr. Carson. Ladies and gentlemen, we will continue with the program we have heard from Dr. Craig, and now we will hear from Dr. Crossan in our exchange on the historicity of Jesus. Dr. Crossan. Thank you. In my opening statement, I'll try to explain to you the presuppositions that I work from, at least as clearly as I can see them. I'll have two major points and then why I consider those points to be important. First one sort of has to do with history and it deals with the difference between the real and the historical Jesus. The title, the real Jesus is the Jesus of 2,000 years of Christian faith. That is very easily answered. But I find myself, I have never used the phrase the real Jesus in any book. Possibly that may be because I learned English in Ireland rather than America, and I don't use real quite so often as it is used here. It will be on the front page of tomorrow's New York Times book review, The Real Lives of the Brontes. I use instead the historical Jesus because that is a technical term in scholarship. Whether we like it or not, it's a technical term. The SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature to which Dr. Craig and myself belong, has a section called the historical Jesus section. And that is an attempt to talk about the earthly Jesus as that Jesus can be reconstructed through historical means. So that's what I've usually been talking about. The real Jesus is, of course, much bigger than the historical Jesus. And these presuppositions are important for me. And by a presupposition, I do not mean at all something that cannot be challenged. It simply means something that I started from. If it's wrong, then we have to start all over again. The presuppositions are supported by a massive consensus of scholarship. Now, that's not an argument, that's just a statement of fact. I do not find anywhere in the New Testament that, that it tells you that numbers makes you right. Or anywhere in the Bible, in fact, that it tells you that the majority is usually moral. There seems to be a tendency in the Bible to think that the few are more likely to be right than the many. However, as a fact, here is a presupposition, that the Gospel of Mark was used by the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, that it was one of their major sources. Now that is where I begin. If that is wrong, everything will have to be redone. And of course it could be proved wrong. It could be proved wrong by a peasant digging around in Egypt tomorrow morning in a rubbish dump and finding, say, a Gospel data to the year 100. But if Mark was used by Matthew and Luke, then you can, if you put them in parallel columns, which is the way scholars study them, cover Mark and see what Matthew and Luke do with Mark when they are using him as a source. 
You can see, in other words, how inspiration operates when somebody is using a source. That will become crucial as we continue. A second sort of a presupposition to which there is a massive consensus of scholarship, again, stating that simply as a fact, it's not idiosyncratic to start there, in other words. That is that in the data of the New Testament Gospels concerning Jesus' words and deeds, there are three successive layers. Let's call the first one the original layer that goes back to Jesus, the second layer, which is the tradition taking and adapting, creatively adapting sayings and words of Jesus, and a third layer which comes from the evangelists themselves. And that there is a degree of creativity that somewhat bothers us in all of those layers. Now, without those presuppositions, everything that I say would be as absurd as Dr. Greg Craig has made it sound. With those presuppositions, we start down a long 200-year voyage. And the trick is not to lose your nerve. Gospels are exactly what they say they are, good news, which means they must be good and they must be news. They're good from somebody's point of view. Christian point of view and not the pagan Roman point of view. And they are news. That means by definition, Gospels update. Mark updates to the 70s. Matthew and Luke update say to the 80s. John updates to the 90s. I say update, not upgrade. They update the story. Those are presuppositions. Not beyond discussion, of course. And if they are wrong, everything built on them is built on sand. Secondly, the formulation of this question then brings up the question of the historical Jesus. Otherwise, anyone would say, you've got four versions, go read them. Yes, but as soon as you say that Matthew and Luke are based on Mark, and as soon as you say, going a little bit further, that there's almost a split right down the middle of scholarship on whether John knows Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All of a sudden, we begin to see not four accounts of Jesus, but a stream of developing tradition. By the way, I see no problem with that. They are Gospels. That's what they say they are. I think if we had the evangelists here, they would say, that is called the freedom of the children of God. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit. I, Matthew, am willing to look at Mark telling me what Jesus said, and say, that's all very nice, but I think for my people, right now, this is a better way to say it. I, too, have the Holy Spirit, Mark. In those last 200 years, the formulation, unfortunately, of this question has usually been the historical Jesus versus, against, over against the Christ of faith. That is a formulation which I reject completely. It is not against. It is a question of the relationship. The way I formulate the question is this. If you were there in Palestine in the first quarter of the first century, and you were, let us say, a neutral observer, what would you have seen? What would you have seen that explains to you why some people said, this man is divine, let's follow him, and other people, maybe equally good people, said, this man is criminal, let's execute him. And we know they both were there because they both did it. How do you explain both of those? Not just from the Christian point of view, but from the pagan point of view. I am totally on the Christian side, but I have to ask myself, what were the pagans seeing that they found criminal? 
A second major area, which is really much more important for me than the former, has to do with language. and has to do with the distinction between literal and metaphorical language, or actual and symbolic language, if you prefer. Most of us understand it completely on the level of a sentence. Jesus lived at Nazareth is actual, factual, historical, biographical, whatever you would call it. Jesus is the Lamb of God, we know immediately, is not the same type of language. It is symbolical, and we have to ask what it means. It is figurative, it is metaphorical. Now, are there stories like that? Stories which are literal and stories which are symbolical. And of course, either can be true or false. Let me take you out of the Bible. I guess since Dr. Craig went to Peter Pan, I can go into Never Never Land too. Let's go to Aesop. Aesop's fables. And imagine a three-way argument, one person saying, Wow! You know animals could talk in ancient Greece. A second person saying, No, 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 no. They couldn't, but there was a stupid Greek who thought they could. And of course the third person saying, Wait a minute, you're both wrong. This is a certain type of story, a genre, call a fable, animals are allowed to talk there to make basic moral principles evident. Now imagine that argument. How could you prove animals couldn't speak in ancient Greece? I'd hate to have Johnny Cochran coming after me in court on that one. Were you there, Ms. Dr. Crossan? No, I wasn't. Have you checked out all the animals? Well, no, I haven't. Then how dare you say what could or could not happen in ancient Greece? Well, they usually don't. That's a prejudice, Dr. Crossan. That's a presupposition. Well, yeah, I guess. But what we have done now is missed the whole point. Because the point of the story, whatever the story we were reading, had a moral point, and we've missed it. We're now arguing whether animals could or could not talk in ancient Greece, or whether ancient Greeks were stupid enough to think they could. We have been totally wrong. Now let's move from fable to parable. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and notice Jesus likes parables, by the way. Same argument. Is the Good Samaritan parable, did it really happen? Of course it did. It mentions Jerusalem, it mentions Jericho, it mentions going down that 1,500 foot drop. It mentions the bandits and everyone knows there were bandits in the hills around there. Of course it's historical. No, it isn't historical. Jesus just made it up. It's a parable, dummy. Now watch what's happening. There's an argument going on which cannot be really proved one way or the other. I can make very good arguments that it was historical. You can make very good arguments that Jesus made it up a second ago. In the meanwhile, we are both avoiding the issue, which is Jesus' challenge to live your life like the Good Samaritan. To live your life not in ethnic cleansing, but if you happen to find your enemy in distress, do everything you possibly can to help him. Are you or are you not willing to live your life like that? That's the question. Whether it's historical or not, in a certain sense, I'm almost going to say I don't care. It's an interesting debate, but don't let it fake you out on the real issue. Now let me come in to the Bible. And I'm going to talk about two examples of beginnings, because figurative, symbolical, parabolic language, I won't use mythical language because it sounds like a dirty word, I'm afraid, at the moment. Parabolic language. Surely parabolic language is good, it's the chosen form of language of Jesus, and he may have picked it up from his father. There's a lot of parabolic language in the Bible. Let's imagine parabolic language is heavy around beginnings and endings, because in beginnings, 
Beginnings have to carry our hopes, and endings have to bury our fears. So endings and beginnings are freighted heavily with symbolic language. I open my Bible in Genesis 1 and I find that God created the world in six days of labor, or six days at least of command, and one day of rest. And I immediately then ask myself, is this information about the beginning of the world? It certainly reads like it. Two things come together to push me not to read it like that. One comes from reason and one comes from revelation, and reason and revelation are for me gifts from God. As an aside, I reject absolutely the naturalist position that Dr. Craig attributed to me. Reason comes from God to all of us. Revelation comes from God in particulars. Reason tells me, from all I know about evolution, and I don't know very much, to be honest with you, that it sounds reasonable that that's not the way it happened. Now, that could all be wrong, but it sounds reasonable that that's not the way it happened. Now, I ask a more important question. And this is really the crucial question for me. Not, you've got this dumb story in there, and aren't we so smart since the Enlightenment that we know better? But was that story trying to tell us that from the beginning, or are we so dumb since the Enlightenment that we've been misreading it? Was that a metaphorical story that we read literally and we blew it? If it's a metaphorical story, what's it a metaphorical story about? Well, read it again. God cannot skip the Sabbath even to create the world. He can't begin on Wednesday, as it were, and work straight through to Tuesday. God has to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath is bigger than creation. It's very close to bigger than God. Now, the challenge of the story is then, to me, do I or do I not believe that God is Lord of time, Lord of history, and when I find out about it, Lord of Evolution. Once again, we can argue, and we cannot prove it one way or the other, we can argue six days means six days, morning and evening one day, or evening and morning one day in the Jewish reckoning, so that's what it means. And in the meanwhile, we are avoiding the major issue that the story gives us as its challenge. Is God Lord of history? And if so, what are you doing about it? Let me come then to another beginning. The beginning of Jesus' life. Watch again how figurative language weighs heavily on these beginnings and endings. I read Luke and Matthew, and very, very clearly, as clearly as those six days, I read that there was a virginal conception, a miraculous conception, in which God overshadowed Mary, and God and Mary produced Jesus. Jesus is divine. Jesus is Son of God. Now, I admit immediately my reason says, wait a minute, do those things really happen? I hear the echoes, how can I tell? I wasn't there, maybe this is the exception. But then I know there's another story as well, another ancient story, I'm just focusing on one. Suetonius, the Roman historian, tells us that the night that Augustus, the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth, was conceived, his mother, Astia, was in the temple of Apollo, and Apollo impregnated her so that Astia bore a divine child, Augustus. Augustus is son of God and divine, says the pagan Roman. Jesus is son of God and divine, says the Christian. Now I look at those two stories. I'm sure we could give reasons 
not to disbelieve Suetonius, he's not a liar, etc., etc. What about those two stories? Here is how I read them. You can say the Jesus story is historical, but of course the pagan Roman historian is, that's just mythical, and since there are no pagan Romans around to defend you and it's not politically incorrect to knock the pagan Romans, you'd probably get away with it. But in all honesty, the question then presses. Did Matthew and Luke intend that literally? Or did they intend it metaphorically? Are we misreading them? Are we misinterpreting them? And are our debates about the biology of Mary totally off the point, which is this? Where do you find your God? Is it in Augustus over there in the Palatine Palace, backed by the legions with power from the top down? Or is it in the peasant stable, in a child born to a family that didn't even have a place to live when it happened? Where do you find your God? with power, with domination, with Augustus, or with Jesus, and empowerment from the bottom up. That's the challenge, and that's what we're avoiding by asking the other question. When we say, when Christians said in the first century, Jesus is Lord, they were committing high treason. That's hard for us ever to do. They meant... Jesus is Lord, and Caesar ain't. Now, it took the Romans about a hundred years to figure out that they were serious on that, and it wasn't just some kind of a bad joke. By then it was too late. It was as if in the 30s of this century, a group in Germany began to say, Jesus is Führer, meaning he ain't. That is the challenge of these stories. Now, I repeat my, my problem. It's not, aren't these dumb stories and aren't we so smart that we don't take them literally? My question is, did people in ancient times and in medieval times and in many places of the world today know how to hear a story, not really be sure whether it was literal or metaphorical, but get the point, and then ask, do you or do you not believe in that point? Is Jesus for you, Lord and Savior, are not. Two final points. Why is this important for me? For two reasons, internal and external. The Gospels are normative, I think, for us as Christians, not just in their production, what they create, but in the way they are written. Every time a Gospel goes back as if it was in the 20s and writes Jesus from the 20s into the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Gospel always takes the historical Jesus and laminates it together with the Christ we believe in, the two of them together. John rewrites the 20s as Mark had done before him. The historical Jesus is crucial for Christianity because we must, in each generation, in the church, redo our historical work and redo our theological work. We can't skip it. And the second and final reason is this, that when I look a Buddhist friend in the face, I cannot say because I think it is wrong. Our story about Jesus' virginal birth, that is true and factual. Your story that the Buddha came out of his mother's womb walking, talking, teaching and preaching, which you must admit is even better than our story, that's a myth. We have the truth, you have the lie. I don't think that can be said any longer and I think it is a cancer 
that eats at the heart of Christianity, our insistence that our stories, our faith is fact, and that your faith is lie. Thank you, Dr. Crossan. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll now have a, a break and then return for Dr. Craig's uh, rebuttal. Thank you. We'll go now back to Dr. William Craig, who will uh, rebut uh, the positions and uh, postulates of Dr. Crossan. Dr. Craig will take uh, nine minutes. In this speech, I'd like to review those two contentions that I said that I would defend tonight and see how Dr. Crossan's replies measure up. First, you remember I argued that the real Jesus rose from the dead in confirmation of his radical personal claims to divinity. I pointed out that Jesus made radical claims to divine authority in which he put himself in the place of God. And Dr. Crossan didn't deny that. I then said that Jesus' resurrection from the dead stands as confirmation of those claims. And I pointed out four uh, facts that are agreed upon by scholarship today. The burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief. These are established historical facts. And the best explanation, I believe, for these are, is the resurrection of Jesus. Dr. Crossan denies these on the basis of several radical presuppositions, which I think are simply false and therefore present an untenable picture of Jesus. In his speech, he said, well, I have two other presuppositions. First, that Mark was used by Matthew and Luke, and second, that there are three layers of tradition. I certainly accept both of those presuppositions. What I do not accept, however, is that the gospel accounts of the resurrection and death of Christ are based on the gospel of Peter, that Mark presupposed a secret gospel of Mark, that there was this inventive early Christian community, and that naturalism holds. Those are the controversial presuppositions, not Mark and priority or three layers of tradition. Dr. Crossan said that he rejects naturalism, but I quoted him directly saying that he assumes that God does not act directly physically in the world and gave several quoted examples from that. Now, if he wants to back away from that naturalistic view, that's fine. Naturalism is the view that there are no miracles in the world, and that's what he asserts in his writings. So I don't think we've seen anything that directly refutes that first and, I think, major contention tonight. Now, what about the second point, that if Jesus did not rise, then Christianity is a fairy tale which no rational person should believe. Here I presented a dilemma. If the historical Jesus is not identical to the Christ of faith, then to continue to worship and pray to the Christ of faith is either idolatry, if you're worshiping and praying to a dead man, or else it's self-delusion, if you're worshiping and praying to a figment of your imagination. Now, what Dr. Crossan said here is that the real Jesus is not the same as the historical Jesus. Why? 
Well, because you can use literal versus metaphorical language to express different truths. And he points out that Aesop's fables and the parables of Jesus are not used to express literal truths. They're metaphorical. That's certainly true as a general point. But the question is, what is the literary genre that we're dealing with? What, is, what type of literature are we dealing with? And I know that Dr. Crossan knows that the Gospels are not of the genre of myth or allegory or folk story or fairy tale. They're of the genre of historical writing. This has been excellently demonstrated by Colin Hemer in his recent book, The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. Hemer combs through the Book of Acts to bring out a wealth of historical detail, which has been verified by archaeological and papyrological findings that show that Luke is a consummate historian in the Book of Acts, and I believe also in the Gospel of Luke. The judgment of Sir William Ramsey, I think, still stands. He wrote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author deserves to be placed among the very greatest of historians. So the question is really a matter of the literary genre. Now, what about the specific examples he gives? What about the virgin birth? He compares this to pagan birth stories. Well, I would simply suggest that the virgin birth story in Matthew and Luke is not parallel to these sorts of stories in pagan literature. In fact, it is unparalleled to anything in pagan literature. Ben Witherington writes in an article in the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels, any comparison of Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 to pagan divine birth stories leads to the conclusion that the gospel stories cannot be explained simply on the basis of such comparisons. For what we find in Matthew and Luke is not the story of a divine being descending to earth and in the guise of a man mating with a human woman, but rather the story of miraculous conception without the aid of any man, divine or otherwise. As such, this story is without precedent in Jewish or pagan literature. So I don't think you can write off the virgin birth story as being on the level of pagan uh, mythology. But what specifically about the resurrection? When the New Testament writers speak of the resurrection, do they intend this as a metaphor? Well, I think this is very clearly not their intention. They intend this to be taken as a literal event. Raymond Brown, a great contemporary New Testament scholar, writes, It is not accurate to claim that the New Testament references to the resurrection of Jesus are ambiguous as to whether they mean bodily resurrection. There was no other kind of resurrection. The Jews believed in bodily, physical resurrection from the grave. And thus you find, for example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 discoursing at length in answer to the question, with what type of body do they come when they arise from the dead? The sermons in the book of Acts present the resurrection as a literal event in history, just like the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus, but one verified by witnesses. And the whole empty tomb tradition shows that this was not intended to be a mere metaphor, but was thought of as a literal event. Dr. Crossan's view is that the resurrection is just a metaphor for the continuing presence of Jesus. But the early Christians could have expressed the continuing presence of Jesus without recourse to a misleading metaphor like the resurrection. For example, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, Though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Now, they could have said exactly the same thing about the deceased Jesus, that he was still present in spirit among them. In fact, in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit of Christ, 
they had a theologically rich and profound way of talking about Christ's continuing presence without all this misleading uh, terminology of resurrection from the dead. But they weren't content to, to merely assert Christ's spiritual presence with them. They believed that Christ was literally, bodily, physically raised from the dead. In any case, all of this is somewhat academic because we saw in my first contention that the majority of scholars do agree that the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, and the origin of the disciples' belief are historical facts. They're not metaphors. And you've got to, as a responsible historian, explain these. The best explanation, I think, is in fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what about this bifurcation between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith? I submit to you that this is simply a pseudo-distinction. If you make this distinction, there are no objective constraints on who or what the Christ of faith is. Who are we talking about with this Christ of faith? The Christ of National Socialist Germany or the Christ of Catholic Ireland? The Christ of Mormons or of Jehovah's Witnesses? The Christ of Jim Jones or of David Koresh? This question is crucial. By making a dichotomy between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith, Dr. Crossan has no way to determine objectively who the Christ of faith is. But this is a question we cannot avoid. As Dr. Crossan himself writes, reason and revelation, or history and faith, cannot contradict each other. In theory, revelation is superior to reason. In practice, reason is usually the final judge. Otherwise, we have no way to evaluate a Jonestown or a Waco situation before it is too late. We must be able to critically evaluate proposed Christs of faith by how they measure up to the Jesus of history if we don't want to wind up sanctioning Auschwitz and Jonestown. But Dr. Crossan has no objective constraints on the Christ of faith. For him, the Christ of faith is whatever you want him to be. But then we could ask further, why stop with Christ? Why not a non-Christian myth? Take the example of Octavius Caesar. Uh, Dr. Crossan writes, Jesus' divine origins are just as fictional or mythological as those of Octavius. Neither should be taken literally. Both must be taken metaphorically. But which metaphor do you believe in? Octavius is divine or Jesus is divine? Where do you find your God? And Dr. Crossan provides no criteria for making such a choice. On his view, Christ is on a par with Thor, Zeus, and Mercury, and there simply isn't any way to decide who is the real Christ of faith. But finally, and with this I close, why believe in such myths at all? Folks, these are fairy tales. It's Peter Pan theology. Why should you get up on a Sunday morning and go and worship and pray to somebody who isn't really there? It seems to me that unless the Jesus of history is the Christ of faith, this whole enterprise is rational and we, uh, irrational, and we might as well just go home and forget about it. Thank you, Dr. Craig. We'll have a brief a break and then hear back from Dr. Crossan.
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, now we'll hear the rebuttal of Dr. Crossland. Dr. Crossland. Let me begin with the question of naturalism and miracles. I've been to Lourdes in France and to Fatima in Spain, in Portugal, sorry. Healing shrines, Roman Catholic healing shrines of the Virgin Mary. And I think I really was there as a pilgrim, not just a tourist. I've also been to Epidaurus in Greece and Pergamum in Turkey, which are healing shrines of the pagan god Esclapius. And I was there really as a tourist, to be honest. In both those places, the miracles were remarkably the same. The healings were remarkably the same. And in both those places, I believe that healings did happen. It is true that at Lourdes, for example, you see many crutches, but you see no wooden legs. It is clear that certain people with certain diseases are healed under certain circumstances. It is as sure as anything that under certain circumstances and with certain diseases, faith heals, which is exactly what Jesus kept saying in the gospel, your faith has healed you. Is that naturalism? If I find something I cannot explain in the world, I simply say I cannot explain it, which is about, well now with electronics in there, at least 98% of the world probably. And even when I can understand it, it's only my interpretation. The proper answer when you're confronted with certain things is, I don't know how that happened. That's a marvel. But it is my theological belief that is, it's a theological, not naturalism, that the supernatural always, always, at least until this is disproved for me, operates through the screen of the natural. The supernatural is like the beating heart of the natural. It does not come seeping through cracks every now and then where we can see it. It is always there, only we very seldom see it. So when somebody tells me that this happened and it's a miracle, I would never mock it, because what it means for me is at that moment, through faith, they saw a glimpse of the permanent presence of the supernatural. I might not see it there. Our group might not see it there. But it's there all the time for us to see. Miracles are acts of faith that says, here is where I, or we, see the supernatural which is permanently present, made as it were visible to us. That is how I understand miracles. That is not naturalism. It is a belief that the supernatural always, never forces faith. Maybe that's the blunt way to put it. There's always an out. God never forces faith. You can always say it was just chance, it was just luck, it was just the story or whatever. Secondly, I think I would disagree with Dr. Craig when he says a majority, and I don't use majority quite the way he does, I think it's the job of a scholar to take on maybe the majority every now and then. And if everyone laughs at you, and if a hundred years from now they're still laughing, then I guess you were wrong. But there is no consensus except by some people every now and then sticking their neck way out against the majority and seeing what happens. I do not think, however, that he is right, factually right, to say that the majority of New Testament scholars say that Jesus claimed he was God. I don't think that's correct. 
I'm not even certain a majority of New Testament scholars say Jesus claimed he was Messiah. He himself personally claimed. That others claimed, that's another question. What the majority clearly says is what Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God or God's will for the earth, like the Our Father says. I know it might be extraordinary to think about it, but Jesus might have been more interested in God than he was in himself. To turn to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Dr. Craig is quite right. There was no belief in, a per in an individual resurrection in Judaism. You could imagine a, an Elijah taken up to heaven, but that's not quite the same thing. There was a belief among certain elements within first century Judaism, the Pharisees especially, in a general resurrection. So when Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised, there's no general resurrection. If there's no general resurrection, Jesus was not raised. What he is saying is exactly what he says. Jesus is the first fruits of them that sleep. In plain language, the general resurrection has begun with Jesus. Now that's a metaphor. First fruits is what happens at the beginning of the harvest. I don't know if Paul was here today and we said to him, Paul, it's 2,000 years later. Do you still think that's the best way to put it? Do you think there might be a better way to explain what is a fact that Christians for 2,000 years have experienced the continuing, salvific, powerful presence of Christ in their lives? That's a fact, unless we're all liars. Now, how do you explain that? Is resurrection the best way still if there's a 2,000-year gap between the first fruits and the rest of the harvest and the clock is ticking? Secondly, when Paul is pushed to say what type of a body, he says it is a spiritual body. Now, I do not have a clue what that means. I know what a physical body is, I know what a spirit is like, but I don't know what a spiritual body is. But I'm not mocking Paul because I think what he wants to say is absolutely true. He wants to say, I'm talking about the same Jesus, everything, not just his spirit or not just his memories or not just his words, but the same Jesus that was there in the hills of Galilee is now present and available on the wharfs of Corinth. Not just his words, not just his memory, but everything. It's the same Jesus in a totally different mode of existence. So if I'm a doctor at Corinth, I'm listening to Paul, I'm hearing about the resurrection, I don't say, okay, okay, Paul, I got it, I believe you. Somebody saw it, you heard it, you're telling me, I believe it. The doctor at Corinth believed in the resurrection because having heard Paul, he was able to experience the presence, the empowering presence of Christ in his life. And resurrection was the way Paul explained it. But the fact was the presence and the experience. Without that, there is no Christianity, and Paul is perfectly right. Without that, it's all over. That is what it means for me. Those two things. The same Jesus, totally the same Jesus in a totally different mode of being. Dr. Craig asks, why should we believe in a metaphor? We never believe in anything else. We don't need faith for facts. If I were to say to you, I don't believe in America anymore, you would know immediately, I'm not saying I don't think there's a landmass between the borders of Canada and Mexico. You would know I must mean I don't believe in America as whatever, though, the land of opportunity, the land of justice, the land of 
fairness, the home of the free and the land of the brave, I must be saying I don't believe in it as. It is for metaphors that we live and die, for nothing else. We don't really die for facts. We die for a way of seeing a fact, and that is called a metaphor. In other words, my answer is we believe in metaphors because there's nothing else to believe in. But we make our choice which metaphor. Thank you, Dr. Carson. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We have <clears throat> another break, a little bit longer than the last one, four or five minutes, after which we will uh, mix it up over here. Thank you. questions, the first of which is directed to uh, Dr. Corson. Uh, now, intending no incivility, <laughs> I heard you uh, several times refer to yourself as a Christian. Uh, this raises a, a question of definition, uh, which uh, I'm not secure about. When I wrote my first book, reaching for the widest, most latitudinarian definition of Christianity, I turned to Reinhold Niebuhr. And Reinhold Niebuhr said, there is one thing that in order to be a Christian, one requires a commitment on, and that is that Jesus was other than just a, a man. Now, if you are redefining Christianity, by what authority has this happened? Well, there's been no proper smoke yet, you notice. <laughs> so, as of now, I'm one up. I... When I say Jesus was human and divine, Divine is for me an act of faith. It's not a statement of fact exactly the same way that Jesus was human, which is open to anyone in public discourse like anyone else. <clears throat> to say Jesus is divine is a statement made by Christians. It means I, the Christian speaking, find God in Jesus. I do not find God somewhere else. Somebody else may find God somewhere else, but I do not. That's what it means to be a Christian. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not talking about comparative religions here. I want to know why it is that you call yourself a Christian. Why don't you just say, Christ, whoever he was, said some interesting things. And uh, to the extent that, they, uh, uh, that I have an affinity for what he said, I will call myself a Christian. But I don't think this makes you a Christian under any formal definition. That's why I don't really quite know what, what you're doing here, and under these auspices. <laughs> If you talk about metaphors, I am a puff of smoke. Ah. <laughs> you got a puff of smoke. Let me back up a little bit. We are talking about comparative religion, Mr. Buckley. We really are. There are other religions out there. No, we're no, let me finish. Let me finish. So, I understand that other people find God elsewhere. To be a Christian, for me, says that you find God, you experience the presence of God 
in Jesus of Nazareth and not somewhere else. That's what it means to be a Christian. No, well, yeah, but because I'm a group is saying that, not just an individual. No, uh, but but, but um, your, your uh, interest uh, in Christ, uh, I take it, has something to do with uh, the fact that he uttered certain homilies which you find uh, fetching. And that, that would not be my way of putting it. Um, I'm more interested in not just a couple of words. I don't know if there's anything particularly new in what was said. I'm interested in a life. An entire life consummated by a death. That's what's important for me. Of course he said certain things. He had a vision and he had a program. And for that vision and that program he was executed. If he did not do that, I wouldn't know he'd know who he was. Could I jump in here and press, sure. press a point? Sure. Um, this distinction between statements of faith and statements of fact that you make troubles me. Uh, I would like to know, for you, what about the statement that God exists? Is that a statement of faith or a statement of fact? It's a statement of faith for all those who make it. So, on your view then, factually speaking, it is not true that God exists. That would not be a nice way to put it. Let me put it this way. <laughs> you mean God wouldn't like it? Oh, no. God, God does not have an identity crisis. God knows exactly who God is. So he really does. Um, what I'm saying here is to try and take faith seriously. I understand that Dr. Craig wants to equate faith and fact. There are people in the world who do not believe God exists. I understand that. I happen to think they're wrong. But that does not make it any less an act of faith. They are making an act of faith in something else. But is God omnipotent? <clears throat> in the sense in which you would use the word, that you would use your power to, to make, to force your will. God does not seem to use omnipotence the way I would use it. If I was omnipotent, I would tend to probably abuse it to make certain that I got my way. Well, if, if God is omnipotent, then he can interrupt a natural order, can't he? Can. If we're, if, we're, if we're talking on the level of can, I probably would not say a single thing about what God can or cannot do. I will make a statement about what I find God doing. I said, I find, for example, people are healed by faith. If Roman Catholics were to use that as an argument that they have the only true religion, look at Fatima and look at Lourdes, for example, I would not be able to accept that. They heal. God has built healing, if you will, into the universe, for which, thank God. But if the existence of God is a statement of faith, not a statement of fact, that means that God's existence is simply an interpretive construct that a particular human mind, a believer, puts onto the universe. But in and of itself, the universe is without such a being as God. That is that's simply a, a, an interpretation that a believer puts on it. It seems to me that on, a, on a, a level of reality, independent of human consciousness, your worldview is actually atheistic, and that religion is simply an interpretive uh, framework that individual people put on the world, and none of these are factually, objectively true. Another one of his metaphors. Exactly. God, God himself is a metaphor. <laughs> God is a nice thought, is really what you're saying. All right. Well, well, God is a better thought than some other one that I know of. 
And no, I would say what you're trying to do is imagine the world without us. Now, unfortunately, I can't do that. If you were to ask me, which is what you just did, abstract from faith, how would God be if no human beings existed? That's like asking me, would I be annoyed if I hadn't been conceived? I really don't understand answer that question. We only know, we only know God as God has revealed God to us. That's all we could ever know in any religion. During the Jurassic Age, when there were no human beings, did God exist? Meaningless question. But surely that's not a meaningless question. I mean, it's a factual question. Was there a being who uh, was the creator and sustainer of the universe during that period of time when no human beings existed? It seems to me on your view you'd have to say no. Well, I would probably prefer to say no because what you're doing is trying to put yourself in the position of God and ask, well, how is God apart from revelation? How is God apart from faith? I don't know if you can do that. You can do it, I suppose, but I don't know if it really has any point. Well, let me ask you uh, to answer concretely uh, a question raised by Dr. Parson. He says he doesn't, uh, he can't conceive of a spiritual body. Yes. And under the circumstances, uh, your question means nothing. I think that that's a misunderstanding of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think that we have the clue to his meaning in the same letter in the second chapter when he makes the contrast between the spiritual man and the natural man. Clearly there, the natural man does not mean material, physical, extended, tangible man. It means man under the domination of the natural human nature. And a spiritual man doesn't mean immaterial, invisible, unextended, uh, intangible man. A spiritual man there means a person under the domination and control of the Holy Spirit. In the same sense that we might say of, a, of a, the pastor that he's a very spiritual man. Uh, and then when you come to the 15th chapter, he uses the same vocabulary to contrast the natural body with the resurrection body. And he's not talking there about substance or what they're made out of, he's talking about their orientation. So that it's a contrast between the body that is now dominated by the sinful human nature and susceptible to corruption and mortality, in contrast to the body that will be immortal, incorruptible, free from the effects of sin and under the complete control of God's Holy Spirit. It's not a contrast between materiality, it's a contrast between their orientation. So it seems to me that for Paul to talk about a spiritual body as some sort of invisible, unextended, immaterial, intangible body would have simply been a contradiction in terms. He's talking about a real physical body under the domination and control of the Holy Spirit. So, so in other words, before Jesus' resurrection, his body was under the control of natural forces, sin, and all the rest well, of Well, he's talking there, as, as you know, about the general resurrection. Now, we're talking about the 15th chapter. Now, you made the comparison. Right, right. And he's talking there about the general resurrection of the dead, and he's comparing our feeble human nature, which is sinful and, and under including the... Including Jesus? Pardon me? Including Jesus? Well, he, did, he, doesn't draw, he doesn't say that Jesus had that kind of natural body. He, he uh, is talking about the general resurrection. So he doesn't assert that Jesus had a sinful domination by the... the uh, human nature. He's talking about our present bodies with our future resurrection. But the main point there is that the contrast he's drawing is not one of substance, but orientation. So I don't, and, and in any case, 
in any case, even if he were talking about some sort of immaterial body, the point is that that body is the result of the transformation of the remains of the earthly body in the ground. The, the, the body that is sown, he says, will be raised. The, 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 uh, it's, it's clearly a literal resurrection of the remains of the person in the grave. Yeah, but let me ask you this. Is there any sense in which Paul could have spoken or written uh, those words metaphorically uh, when he said, if Christ is not risen, then all is in vain? He didn't mean rise in our estimation. No, no. He didn't say uh, uh, rise in the sense of being creating more followers. He meant rise from the dead. Right. And Dr. Crossan, in in your work, you you virtually say that. You say that Paul is arguing there for a bodily resurrection, which is the first fruits of the general resurrection of the dead, which was certainly literal in Jewish thinking. I mean, Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, He believed in a literal, physical, general resurrection of the dead, and he thought that in Christ... The first one had, had begun, so he's not talking about a metaphor there. No, but it, it is a little bit more complicated than that. When, when Paul is pushed, he goes straight into a metaphor. You, you mentioned it. The seed is sown into the ground. Now, it's the same seed, but something comes up totally different. Same seed, totally different, the year of barley or whatever. Now, if you were to say to Paul, all right, Paul, we have people now who are dying. For example, before their general resurrection. Their bodies are moldering into dust. Would it make any difference, Paul, if those bodies simply disappeared, as it were? And this is a totally new divine body beyond our human understanding and certainly not ourselves put back together by divine power. So wouldn't that apply to Jesus? So would it make a difference, Paul, if the body that Jesus once had, like the body that you and I have, we're simply like the seed, whatever happens to it down there is God's business. But, but that, that's really a high form of revisionism. I mean, I, I wouldn't say to Shakespeare, but would you say about Hamlet if I gave you another chance? <laughs> Why not? Why not? That's a marvelous question. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that those, those were uh, his words, the understanding that uh, they uh, communicated was generally accepted, is generally accepted, will be generally accepted because we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Mm-hmm. But under the circumstances, my, my question is, why do you insist on this mad pursuit of the metaphorical meaning to resist the meaning which occurs to us all as reasonable given the historical circumstances as corroborated by the majority of scholars? Okay. Now, corroborated by the majority of scholars, uh, there's you don't like the majority, I know. Right. You like the few. Yeah, I like the few. The This consensus that you, you promised us that might materialize a hundred years from now, why has it not materialized already? In fact, it has materialized. At, at what point do you just do something else? No. All right. Let's, let's hold, can we hold Paul for the moment? Don't get rid of him. Hold on to him. And turn to the stories at the end of the Gospels. Okay. Okay. Because this is, this is very important for me. Um, when I read the stories of the crucifixion, nobody gets a Jesus crucified in, uh, anywhere except Jerusalem. That's pretty much that. There's differences in the stories, but the date and time. As soon as I come to... Hmm? No, nobody or Dublin. Nobody gets it wrong. They get the right country, right place, right prefect, all the rest of it. When you get to the something which would seem to be more important, the great final meeting of Jesus and his disciples, given their mandate, 
You find it, for example, in Matthew's Gospel on a mountain in Galilee, which is where it should be, because Matthew, Jesus begins on a mountain in Galilee with the, the last, with the um, great sermon on the mount. So where else should it be but on the mountain in Galilee that Jesus says, going there for teach all nations? That's Matthew. When you get to Luke, well, it depends. Luke's Gospel, it's in the upper room. The Acts of the Apostles, it's out in the Mount of Olives. John, it's in the upper room. They seem totally free to locate in time and space and the details Jesus' last dramatic meeting with them, which is crucial for the whole future of the church. And that's why it's a matter Well, you seem to be assuming that, that these are all attempting to narrate the same appearance or the same event. And that's certainly not the case. We have, in the case of the appearance to the Twelve, multiple independent attestation for that, which is, in your thinking, is the key criterion for historical authenticity. You have independent narratives of this in Luke and in uh, John, both of lo locating it in the upper room in Jerusalem, and then you have it in 1 Corinthians 15, attested by Paul. So the appearance to the Twelve, it seems to me, is very well attested. Uh, and even the location of it, which I would regard as a secondary detail that uh, isn't even as important. Um, and the other appearances, for example, uh, it's, it's conceivable that the appearance on the mountain in, uh, in Galilee could have been the appearance to the 500 brethren. Uh, it, it is the same appearance that Mark refers to in the 16th chapter of his book. So it doesn't seem to me that uh, there's a diversity there that's, that's very troubling. Well, that's maybe because he didn't spend so many years studying. It is troubling. It really is troubling. If you start with Mark, Mark ends with an empty tomb and no story of Jesus' apparition. He goes before you into Galilee. There you will see him as the Lord. He doesn't tell the story. Right. He doesn't tell it. And an interpretation of that is that Mark is writing in the context of the Jewish war when Jesus didn't appear to help his beleaguered followers and he wants to sort of cool it on all yeah, of this. See, this is based on your peculiar view that Mark no, no, has no, 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 no resurrection appearance predictions, no. that these are predictions of the second coming of Jesus, which I think is just wrong. I think in, in 16.8 and in 14.28, these are references to resurrection appearances in Galilee. Does, does Mark end the story without telling any resurrection appearances? Yes, All right. Un Thank unless you, you think okay. the ending has been lost. No. But I, I, I would agree he simply right. foreshadows these okay. appearances. So Matthew now, who is following Mark, you agreed with that yes. earlier, when he comes to, you can follow him, you can follow him following Mark to exactly the point where Mark stops. Yes. Then he has Jesus stop the women who are running away in Mark out of fear, repeat the message as it were, yes. and then you have the final meeting in Galilee. Yes. Luke and John, I quite agree with you, agree on the upper room. Now when I read those stories, the problem that comes to me is that is a stream of tradition. That is my problem. It's Mark into Matthew into Luke, and for many scholars into John, I would put myself in that. Mm -hmm. I have a stream of tradition. I don't have divergent witnesses at all. Let me ask you something, Dr. Craig. <clears throat> uh, earlier on, of course, we said <clears throat> if a tablet is discovered that uh, establishes this or that chronologically about the mark, then he will retreat from his present position and start again, I think, were his words, God forbid. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Uh, uh, is, it, is, it your, is it your sense of the revelation that the world will never have a, an exact transcript of the resurrection, by which I mean 
is it ruled out that something like the Shroud of Turin would give us a kind of scientific verification of what we accept as, as revelation and as historical testimony? No, I wouldn't rule that out a priori. I think that would be presumptuous to rule that sort of thing out. Uh, you have to consider, I think, any particular case on its own merits. With respect to the shroud, prior to the carbon dating, well, the, 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 merits, the merits would certainly be in favor of God disclosing to Dr. Crossing that Jesus really did rise up again. So why, why do you say on, on the basis of its merits? It, it's obviously meritorious, but what I'm asking is, is there anything in your understanding of the Christian statement that says Christ and God moved, Christ God moved thus far and no further because they want always to be some sort of a bridge between revelation and faith. Well, I certainly think, and here you're asking me a theological yeah. question, I, I certainly okay. think that God respects the freedom of the will that he's given to human beings so that he doesn't overpower them in a sort of divine rape by such an overwhelming display of his glory and power that we are left uh, powerless but to believe. Um, Pascal, the great French physicist and philosopher, I think quite rightly said that God has given evidence which is sufficiently clear for those with an open mind and an open heart, but which is sufficiently vague so as not to compel those whose hearts are closed. Well, the faith of Pascal was also prudent, wasn't it? He said, yes. since, since I can't absolutely say which, which way it is, I better believe. Otherwise, I might get to trouble. <laughs> yes, he's the famous wager argument. So if you read the rest of his apology, Pascal was also committed to the historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus and the claims of Christ. This was a part of uh, French apologetic literature that time, and this yeah. was going to be a part of Pascal's apology as well. Yeah, but, but, but um, Dr. Crossan raised a very interesting point. He says, look, uh, in fact, people do get healed. Uh, by uh, uh, mm -hmm. auto-hypnotic uh, uh, and other means. So why don't we simply agree that what happened uh, in Fatima is no different from what happened at some of the uh, 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 some of the uh, mythic uh, sure. places in, in, in Greece? Uh, I ask you the question: Is it your understanding that uh, Christianity will deny us what you call that blatant uh, demonstration of its validity? No, I don't think so. It seems to me that, for example, with respect to the resurrection, that would be a miracle which could not be explained by any stretch of the imagination as being the result of psychosomatic Yeah, but, but it, it, it's being challenged right now as not having happened. Now, therefore, I guess my question is, uh, can we reasonably expect a renewed documentation oh. by God of... Um, of his existence and of the divinity of his son. I think that personally, God has given evidence which is sufficiently clear for us to already repose confident faith in the resurrection of Jesus. And I have to say that as a result of my preparation for this debate, reading Dr. Crossan's work, my belief in the historicity of the resurrection has been strengthened because of the extreme desperate alternatives to which Dr. Crossan has to go in order to deny it. Well, let me ask Dr. Crossan this. Yeah. Dr. Crossan, do you exclude... Just make it accurate. I am not denying the resurrection. You just don't like my definition of resurrection. Well, you you're denying it as a story. Sorry. Well, uh, let me ask this, Dr. Crossan. Um, 
uh, in, in, in affirming your belief in God, are you in fact excluding alternatives to that belief as less plausible than it? Or do you simply believe in God because there is revelation or there is uh, uh, induction or deduction? Which epistemological uh, process led you to affirm a belief in God? I don't think it was an epistemological process. That would probably be phony to try and say I argued myself by some logic into it. I really didn't. I think it was probably that I grew up with it as part of the very fabric of my being. I've never seen any reason to challenge it. I've never seen any argument persuading me against it. But well, I don't think I really argued myself into it by logic. Well, you, I really didn't. You grew up thinking that Jesus had resurrected and you got over that. <laughs> of the resurrection. That's what I got over. You were telling us why you believe in God, having told us earlier that God does not ever speak to us through the kind of revelations that are commonly accepted as such miracles, for instance. No, I think it'd be very simple, for example, if there was a voice that said, this is God speaking in, yeah. in English, I presume, for American audience. <laughs> I'm now going to raise anyone who doesn't believe me 25 feet off the ground. All right? Certain people go up 25 feet. Now do you believe no? 20 of them drop. It would be very easy. I mean, it's the way we think I do it. <laughs> if I had that sort of power and people kept saying something I really disagreed but with. You, you would be coercing belief in that case. Of course. That's why God never does it. Not that God can't. God never does it. Not by miracle or anything else. But. Well, Christ did to Thomas something of that nature, did he not? Well, what happens there is that you have somebody who wants, excuse me, proof of your type of resurrection, and he gets told he wants to go touchy-feely on, on the wounds, which is about as literal as you can get. And what he's told by John, in John's Gospel at least, is blessed are those who have not seen and believed. Now, what we've been talking about here is the resurrection you can see. Well, did Christ intend to instruct us or, or to tip off his apostles? that uh, there would be no future demonstrability of his divinity uh, as, uh, as uh, undeniable as what he did for Thomas. Was that what you understand? To have been no, told? Thomas is a clear statement that it is not blessed to want to go and see signs, proofs, literal meanings of resurrection. In fact, it's cursed. I think that the reason that Jesus uh, upbraids Thomas in that story is because Thomas failed to believe on the basis of the apostolic testimony that Jesus was risen. Jesus is not saying, Thomas, it's blessed to make irrational leaps of faith. Uh, he's saying you should have believed on the basis of the credible testimony of the other apostles, the eyewitnesses, that I was risen. And the same blessing is pronounced upon John's readers, who are geographically or chronologically removed from the events of the empty tomb and the resurrection appearances, they too ought to believe on the basis of the apostolic testimony recorded in John's Gospel that Jesus is risen from the dead. But this, this tells us, does it not, that uh, uh, Jesus considered the documentation of his divinity as, as, as conclusive. Under the circumstances, he was <clears throat> distinguishing between those who saw and those who would have to believe. So those who saw <clears throat> were 
people who could give testimony to his resurrection. Well, that's certainly, I think, John's point of view, that, that John is saying that we have adequate apostolic <clears throat> testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and we can confidently believe on that basis, even though we ourselves hasn't, haven't seen an appearance of Jesus or discovered an empty tomb. But it would be fair to say, though, that there's nothing about hearing apostolic testimony in the Thomas story. It's strictly about seeing John. Thomas wants to not only see, he wants to touch. Right. He wants to see and touch. And he's told off. And the reason he's told off is because he should be able to believe without seeing. It's not, right. there's nothing mentioned about apostolic testimony. It's really not in there. Well, it's, it's in the conclusion in the sense that John says, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life through his name. So, so it, 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 that comes on the heels of the Thomas story. And it, it, in effect, says what Thomas failed to do was to believe what the other uh, disciples had told him. And that would mean that everyone after is in exactly the same state. It's not that the first generation, as it were, the first moment they could see and touch and feel, but we have to get it secondhand almost. Right. They we are get in the same position. We get it secondhand in the sense that we rely on the records of those who had it firsthand. Otherwise, you would require Jesus to appear to every single person in the history of mankind in every generation, which is absurd. And, and call them Thomases. Yes. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Dr. Kirchner. <clears throat> do, do, you, do you, as a matter of um, philosophical um, exactitude, rule out any possibility that empirical evidence to come a hundred years from now, fifty years from now, it will completely confute your presuppositions? Oh, that's open every day. I gave you an example. Any day, for example, we might find a gospel, I mean a real Christian gospel, dated to the year 100, let's say by means that are beyond dispute is written on the back of a piece of parchment, or a piece of parchment is used after it, we know the date for sure. And when we read that, we say, wait a minute, we're totally wrong on Matthew and Luke using, totally wrong, we now see a totally different configuration. It would not touch directly on the resurrection, but it would touch definitely on the presuppositions such as that Mark was used by Matthew and Luke. Definitely. It's wide open. It's not only so, well, uh, wildly possible, it's even well, possible. Because it seems to me that by the tenor of what you have spoken <clears throat> and by the uh, profile of your thought, <clears throat> because plain to me anyway, that you simply regard as inconceivable that which... Um, uh, we accept. Since it's inconceivable, how can you make room philosophically for the advent of evidence that confutes you? But you see, I never used the word inconceivable. You really brought it into the discussion. What I said is on the data I have, I don't think that's the best reading. I said if, if and granted that's what I was doing, Matthew and Luke use Mark, and John may be using them, and we have a stream of tradition issuing from Mark, Therefore, I draw following conclusions about the nature of the stories. That could change. W would there be anything, though, Dr. Cross, that could convince you that Jesus was risen from the dead as a historical fact? In other words, to make certain that we're talking about a situation, let's say, outside the empty tomb on, on Easter Sunday morning, if somebody had a video cam, would they, as it were, have seen something come out of the tomb? Is that that type well, of question? Well, I guess what I'm asking is what I think Mr. Buckley's pushing for. What evidence would it take to convince you, or is your preconceived ideas about 
the impossibility of the miraculous and, and so forth so strong that in fact this skews your historical judgment so that such an event could never be even admitted into court. No, I would ask you to go back to my definition of the miraculous. A doctor at Lourdes makes the right statement. I have absolutely no medical way of explaining what this happened. That is the right answer. But you, you said... Minute. Then the person has a right to say, I by faith and believe that God has intervened here. Now, is the theological presupposition of mine that God does not operate that way, that faith is built into the universe and is available to pagan Greeks, to Roman Catholics, and probably in the good old days the communists that believe Lenin's tomb would cure them, about probably the same percentage. That's built into the universe already. What will it take to prove to me that this... I don't know unless God changes the universe. I, I could imagine tomorrow morning every tree outside my house has moved five feet. Wow! Now I'm waiting. That needs some explanation. I don't know the explanation of that. I won't immediately presume America. So therefore you, you're talking about postulates. Uh, how, uh, Bernadette uh, testified after the second vision of Mary that she had announced herself as the Immaculate Conception. And she said, what's that? She'd never heard those words. They'd never been spoken in her presence. How would you account for that? I would not be able to account if somebody, <laughs> in some way that we were certain of, came up with something that no way could have been in their mind. If, for example, let me put it this way, if little Roman Catholic girls, when they have a vision, peasant girls in Europe especially, have a vision of somebody, they describe it, and Hindus were to say, that's Kali, then I'm paying a lot of attention. As long as they find the Virgin Mary, who always wears the same clothes, by the way, blue and white, the Mediterranean sky colors, then I know it's, it's it's a vision. Right. It operates as visions always In do. fact, this is one, of the, this is one of the strongest arguments in favor of the veridicality of the resurrection appearances. Namely, that if these were mere hallucinations or trances, they would not contain anything that was not already in the disciples' minds because they're mere projections of their minds. But the resurrection appearances differed from the Jewish framework about beliefs in the afterlife in two fundamental ways. First of all, it, was, it involved the resurrection of an isolated individual before the end of the world. And secondly, it involved uh, a resurrection which uh, was uh, in the space-time universe within history. Given the disciples' Jewish presuppositions and beliefs about the afterlife, if they were to hallucinate visions of Jesus, they would have seen visions of Jesus in Abraham's bosom or in paradise where the Jews believed the souls of the departed righteous went to be until the general resurrection. And in that case, it would never have led to belief in his resurrection. They would have at most proclaimed the assumption of Jesus into heaven or the translation of Jesus into heaven. The fact that they proclaimed the resurrection, contrary to Jewish beliefs and uh, modes of thinking, I think supports the fact that these appearances were, in fact, veridical. And it was not challenged by the Sanhedrin. Two points. First of all, again, mere hallucinations. Your term, never mind. A vision is not an hallucination. Secondly, it is within the Jewish frame of reference to do exactly what Paul does. To say that there is a, not an isolated resurrection, there is a beginning of the general resurrection. It's often said that Paul expected the end of the world to come soon. Paul thought the end of the world had already begun. That's why he argues both ways. If there is no general resurrection, he says, Jesus hasn't risen. Jesus hasn't risen, but there's no general that, that's, that's clearly a theological construct that is put on it after having experienced such resurrection appearances. The question is, given that 
that it would be a hallucinatory or visionary trance of some sort, would they have hallucinated and believed in resurrection appearances of Jesus? And there the answer is no, because they didn't have that theological construct already in their minds. Paul persecuted the church. That meant it was doing something enough to get him mad about it. He knew enough sure. about Christianity. He wasn't just, say, minding his own business. He had a vision of somebody and he went around describing this person and somebody said, that's Christ. And he said, who's Christ? He knew exactly what, what he was doing. He was persecuting the church. But he had his revelation then of Jesus. A vision. No, not an hallucination. A vision. That vision was fitted into his Pharisaic understanding of resurrection. Ah, a general resurrection has begun. The end of the world has begun. See, the problem is here, though, is you're, you're talking about Paul, whereas I'm talking about the original disciples. And, and you deny that they had any such apparitional experience. No, that's not what I do. What I say, and say very clearly in the book, is the accounts that you have in the last, sto last chapters of the Gospel are not visions. I would take it for granted that people had visions, not just Paul. In any religion, in the beginning of any religion, people have visions. I'd expect them even if there weren't any there. What I'm saying is that when you get the story of Thomas, when you get the story of the race to the tomb between the beloved disciple and, and uh, Peter, when you get the two going to Emmaus, meeting this stranger, that's not a vision. There's no blinding light, there's no bang crash that knocks somebody to the ground. That is the presence, and that's what my contention is, the experienced presence of somebody who's dead and gone and should be out of here. That is what is fundamental for me. Resurrection is one way of explaining that, one way of formulating it. Well, it is. Uh, you, you don't deny, uh, obviously, that uh, uh, Paul intended to communicate his own belief that the end of the world was, so to speak, around the corner. Well, I agree with what Dr. Crossan says. He sees Jesus' resurrection as being the first fruits of the general resurrection. And in, in that sense, we are living in of, the of final the age. Judgment. Yeah, exactly. But the question is, how could these original disciples, if they experienced hallucinations or visions, as you put it, of Jesus, have experienced visions of Jesus as risen from the dead? Given their prior Jewish framework and beliefs about the afterlife, that's not the kind of visions they would have projected. You know, there was a congruity between their visions and the established... Uh Belief system, right. Yeah. They didn't believe in a dying or a rising Messiah. They didn't believe a resurrection could occur within history. Uh, so if they had hallucinations of Jesus brought on by something or the other, at best they would have seen visions of Jesus in paradise and said he's been assumed into heaven or something, but not risen from the dead, which contradicted fundamental Jewish categories of thinking. I disagree, you understand. I do not agree it's contradicted because Paul was a Jew. Paul didn't find a contradiction in there to think Jesus is the first fruits of the general resurrection. He said that. Well, I, I guess I would be repeating myself, but just to say that is the theological construct put on it after the experience. The question is, when these men are confronted simply with the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, what would they then hallucinate before having a chance to put a theological reflection on the experience? And it wouldn't lead to belief in his resurrection. I think this trance argument actually supports the historicity of the appearance stories. Okay, let me leave aside for a moment trance, vision, hallucination. There's another thing that's equally important, and that is the search, searching the scriptures. In the Emma story that I, I told you, the explanation of the scriptures precedes the, the breaking of the bread. What these people did 
try and understand was the death of Jesus his complete condemnation by God and was the question not that the Romans might come after them but God might come after them they went back to the scriptures their own scriptures to find out what was the will of God could the elect one the holy one could even the Messiah die and still be held in God's hands and they found all over the Jewish scriptures there was almost like a job description to be God's elect that you're going to be if not executed persecuted Searching the scriptures is not done in the trance. Right. And that, that comes after they've already experienced these appearances. But let how, me do you know how do you know that? Because the, the faith of the disciples did not lead to the appearances. It was the appearances which led to their faith. I they then searched the scriptures. Let me make a further point. Let me make a further point on the searching the scriptures. In your books, you state very clearly that at best the passion narrative could have been constructed on the basis of these Old Testament right. stories and motifs, not the resurrection right. narratives, because there isn't material in the Old Testament available to reinterpret and construe in terms of resurrection. Moreover, you point out that it would take at least five to ten years in order for them to discover these motifs just to construct the passion. And yet in 1 Corinthians 15.3, we have Paul citing both the death of Christ and his resurrection according to the scriptures in a tradition that most scholars would say goes back to within five years after Jesus' death. So it simply antedates even your reckoning of how long it would take for them to discover these scriptural motifs and construct the passion, much less the resurrection. Let alone this evolution of legendary information. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's just not time. How do you handle that one, Doc? <laughs> well, I go back to metaphor. Sorry, I'm going to ruin your evening. Um, go back to Amos. Two people, probably one male, one female, because the male is mentioned, and as usual in Mediterranean society, the other person isn't, so probably female, leave Jerusalem. It's Easter Sunday morning. Somebody joins them. Now, it's not a vision, it's not an hallucination, it's nothing dynamic or blinding light. The person explains the scriptures to them. They say later their heart was warned, but they still don't recognize it. They then have to in invite this person, this stranger, to come in and eat with them. During the meal, they recognize Jesus. Then he's gone. Now, that, for me, is a perfect metaphorical summary of the first years of the church. It's the searching of the scriptures and the breaking of bread. Jesus is present. Not in the vision, not in the trance, not in the hallucination. One problem with construing that as being some sort of symbol of the Eucharist uh, in which Jesus would be present would be that at the very moment of the bread breaking, Jesus vanishes, which is exactly the opposite of the Eucharistic presence of Christ. Uh, it, this is probably, I think, a recalling of Jesus' table fellowship with the disciples and others which he practiced in his ministry inviting sinners and outcasts and the unclean to join him in fellowship around the table and and this is recalled in the Emmaus story uh, so I don't think that this is necessarily some sort of a, a Eucharistic symbol uh, don't we have here the difficulty that uh, what what you are telling us is that you can envision a prolonged um, uh, uh, allegory that accounts for a lot of data that are accounted in the Gospels, which uh, which don't which don't lead in, in the proper direction. Well, this is um, an interesting intellectual gymnastic uh, act. But uh, why why should it appeal to us? 
uh, uh, in the absence of, of data that you don't, you don't have. You, you acceded all night long to the fact that Dr. Craig comes up with, the, with all these authorities who, who uh, validate the, uh, the historical uh, evidence. But, but you, 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 think, you, you give the impression of having a resistance to it uh, based primarily on your vision of something different. <laughs> Not really, no. If, if um, Dr. Craig can convince you that I'm an idiosyncratic, off-the-wall, lonely weirdo, then, then I'm easy dismissed. <laughs> the trouble is that what I do is actually take the principles that are probably accepted by all biblical scholars, but I actually apply them. They tend to apply them to the sayings of Jesus, maybe to the deeds of Jesus, but now let's stay away from the passion and let's really stay away from the resurrection. But they're the same principles. I, I suppose applying that kind of diligence, we could prove that uh, Lincoln shot Booth rather than vice versa. Well, could you? <laughs> could you? Well, actually, as I've tried to... We have just half a minute. Okay, I've tried to demonstrate in an article I wrote in the book, Jesus Under Fire, which deals with Dr. Crossan's view, that the same criteria of authenticity that scholars use to establish the sayings of Jesus, when applied to the resurrection, the resurrection actually fares very well and ought to be regarded as authentic, using exactly those same sorts of criteria. Thank you, Dr. Craig. Ladies and gentlemen, a very brief break, and we'll be back to wind it up. Five minutes uh, from Dr. Craig coming up, five minutes from Dr. Crossan, and then five minutes uh, from me. But meanwhile, I interrupt myself to tell you that I have been asked uh, on behalf of everyone who's participating in this program to thank you for your enthusiasm, your curiosity. So we will now um, hear whether God uh, survives. Last summer, the Chicago Tribune magazine carried an article on Dr. Crossan's views entitled Gospel Truth with the subtitle, Will Christians Accept a Revolutionary Portrait of Jesus that is based on scholarship, not on faith? As is so typical of media caricatures of Christianity, the article portrayed Dr. Crossan's views as based on scholarship and the biblical view as based on faith. I hope if there's one thing that you get out of tonight's debate, it will have been that precisely the opposite is the case. It is the biblical view that presents us with a revolutionary portrait of Jesus that is supported by scholarship, whereas the theologically liberal picture of Jesus painted by Dr. Crossan is based sheerly on faith. In particular, I think we've seen tonight first that the real Jesus rose from the dead in confirmation of his radical personal claims to divinity. I argued that Jesus put himself in the place of God. And all Dr. Crossan has said here is that, well, I'm not sure the majority of critics think that Jesus uh, said he was God. The point is that the majority of critics do believe that he did things in which he put himself in God's place. As Royce Gordon Gruenler says, 
Jesus is constantly speaking as the voice of God on matters that belong only to God. The evidence clearly leads us to affirm that Jesus implicitly claims to do what only God can do, to forgive sins. The religious authorities correctly understood his claim to divine authority to forgive sinners, but they interpreted his claims as blasphemous and sought his execution. So that if Jesus' radical claims are not true, he is literally a blasphemer. But the resurrection of Jesus vindicates those claims. We saw the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of his empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, the origin of the disciples' belief. And remarkably, Dr. Crossan hasn't challenged the historicity of any of those facts. And so I don't see how we can deny that the resurrection is the best explanation of them. As for Dr. Crossan's presuppositions, again, remarkably in tonight's debate, he hasn't tried to defend any of them. The priority of the Gospel of Peter or the secret Gospel of Mark, the inventive community of early Christians. All he said is that he's not a naturalist. But he does insist that the supernatural only acts through the natural. But that would exclude a priori an event like the resurrection, because there is no natural means by which an event like the resurrection could be brought about. And that's why I think it was so painfully obvious in the question dialogue time that there is no evidence that could convince Dr. Crossan of the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, because he rules it out of court a priori. Now, if Jesus was not risen from the dead, then it does seem to me that Christianity is just a fairy tale which no rational person should believe. Dr. Crossan's attempt to defend belief in Christianity apart from the historicity of the resurrection is to say it's metaphorical. But I challenged him to show that the Gospels are a metaphorical genre of language uh, literature rather than historical, and he never came back on that point. In particular, we saw the virgin birth story is not like any other pagan mythology. And with respect to the resurrection, I showed two things. First, that the earliest Christians interpreted the event literally. Uh, they saw an empty tomb in its wake. They wondered about what kind of body the resurrection body would be. And secondly, that in any case, contention one shows that these aren't metaphors, that this is a real historical fact. And then you remember I challenged him uh, to show us any constraints that would exist on the Christ of faith. Why not the Nazi Christ? Why not the Jim Jones Christ or the David Koresh Christ? And he hasn't yet answered that question. Secondly, I said, why not believe a non-Christian myth? Why not believe in Thor or Zeus or Octavius? And he hasn't given any criteria for why we should exclude those. Finally, I said, why believe in myth at all? He says, well, we all, we all have nothing but myths. Not at all. I think we've seen tonight that we have good historical facts as the foundation for our faith as Christians. And I want to encourage you that if you've never uh, looked into this yourself, that you begin to read the New Testament. Ask yourself, could this really be true? Could Jesus really be the Son of God, risen from the dead, come for my salvation? When I began to look into this as a non-Christian teenager, I found that it was true and it changed my life. And I believe that if you look into it with an open heart and an open mind, these facts can change your life as well. Thank you, Dr. Crossan. I get to go last. I get to be as mean as I want, and I can't be rebutted. 
if you have learned anything here tonight, it is don't believe everything you read in the Chicago Tribune. When I was invited to participate in this debate, I agreed because I think religions are talking to one another in this ecumenical age, but the last ecumenism will be when liberal Christians talk to conservative Christians. And if I did anything to foster that, that's what I wanted to be here. I did not think I would change Dr. Craig's mind. I did not think I would convert him. And in a religious debate, I don't know how one wins a religious debate. There's no election afterwards that you can verify who was right or wrong. So I didn't expect to convert anyone or to win anyone. I wanted to let people hear a conservative viewpoint with its own integrity and its own respect, from my point of view, and to let you hear a liberal viewpoint, or a radical viewpoint maybe, with its own integrity and its own respect. And to ask you, what are you going to do about the fact that both of those are within Christians, or even to Mr. Buckley's displeasure, that I claim to be a Christian with such weird ideas. I would hope that this sort of debate, dialogue, can go on. We managed to do it tonight without impugning one another's competence or motivation, without calling one another names, but simply to try and explain one another's ideas. Not to talk against one another, or just about one another in one another's absence, but at least face to face. Maybe if we can continue that, then if I may borrow the title of a recent novel, we will not be brothers no more, or brothers and sisters no more, we will be sisters and brothers once again in Christ. Thank you, Dr. Cross, and thank you, Dr. Craig, ladies and, uh, and gentlemen. I have just a, a few minutes that have been given to, um, to make a, a small contribution uh, uh, to this uh, interesting uh, exchange. It seems to me that uh, what we continue to discover uh, in, in life is the restive nature of the human uh, intelligence. John Stuart Mill said... Uh, a uh, hundred years ago that uh, as long as a single person believes something, we cannot consider that question closed. Now, this is a theory, a, a, a theory of, of knowledge to which I, uh, I don't agree because it is plain to me that one will always find one person who disputes almost uh, any uh, proposition, the flat earthers, uh, the grassy knowers who won't be convinced that uh, Mr. Kennedy was killed by by his assassin. Uh, they, we have a sort of a grassy old Christianity now, people who are constantly seeking other explanations for certain questions that have been considered closed. I don't believe that progress can be made without closing questions, because if indeed, if indeed uh, uh, the truth will set us uh, free, then we are to some extent charged, are we not, with uh, confronting uh, errors and finding an appropriate uh, attitude uh, toward them. Uh, one is, it seems to me, that there are limits to the civilized sense of uh, curiosity, to uh, wonder afresh whether one should honor one's mother or one's father, whether one should be true to one's 
faith or truth to one's family or be prepared to make sacrifices are not, I think, questions that ought always to be raised every few minutes by some rest of intelligence. The uh, conviction is, is quite general in the Christian uh, community uh, and indeed in the Jewish uh, uh, community and even in Islam that uh, uh, on the whole they are, it is much easier to affirm uh, uh, God and derivatively uh, Christ uh, because m many more questions are answered uh, by, by faith than, uh, than by, by skepticism and that under the circumstances to uh, find to find uh, opportunities and to take hold of opportunities to engage uh, that uh, rest of this is not really to contribute to that pool of intelligence uh, which marks the progress. Dr. Crossan has, uh, in his patient and ingratiating manner, said that the whole Christian idea, really, because the whole Christian idea has to do with the divinity of Christ, is nothing but uh, an evolving uh, legend. Uh, Dr. Craig said, well, there really wasn't time for a legend to evolve uh, in the five years between uh, the time of the crucifixion and the time that uh, Paul spoke of it as the unmistakable historical event in the world. Uh, as regards uh, uh, qualifying, as regards the evolving legends, I, I'm reminded, and with this I close, uh, of, the, uh, of the Darwinian uh, in uh, uh, 18, uh, uh, 1870, uh, inflamed uh, by the evolutionary discoveries that had been uh, so widely circulated since 1859 in the publication of The Origin of Species, who was asked to finally corner and said, uh, well, under the circumstances, what do you think about the evolution of Christianity? Is it finally destroyed? And he paused for a moment. He said, you know, uh, in my judgment, it is not really. Uh, God is not, does not cease to exist because uh, 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 on the whole, I find it easier to believe in God than to believe in the evolution into Hamlet of the, molecular of the molecular structure of a mutton chop. If a mutton chop can produce a hamlet, it is much easier to assume, is it not, that there is a divine, a transcendent order uh, that uh, has given to our lives what uh, keenness they have, inspired our idealism, and that the risen Christ uh, is the source of uh, that special Christian idealism which uh, brings us together. and comments on the evening's event. Before we hear that interview, let's hear a couple of brief comments from Drs. Crossan and Craig. That the debate went at all is absolutely marvelous as far as I'm concerned. What I really wanted was the, to have the, just the phenomenon of a liberal Christian and a conservative Christian able to stand up in public and talk to one another. That was marvelous as far as I'm concerned. I got, you know, equal time and there was no problem. I could explain in general my views. I mean, we ended up going into more detail if we kept at it, but that would also leave out a lot of people in the audience. So at least they got a general impression, I think, of my views. I think it went very well from the uh, point of view that I was defending. My two major contentions seemed to be basically untouched by Dr. Cross, and he never denied any of the four facts underlying the 
resurrection of Jesus. He didn't really come back and try to defend any of his presuppositions on which his critique is based. And I felt he gave a very weak defense of thinking that the resurrection of Jesus is a mere metaphor. So I felt it went well. Buckley Jr., syndicated columnist, founder and editor of the National Review magazine, host of Firing Line on PBS, author including most recent fiction, Brothers No More, published by Doubleday, and tonight moderator of a debate between Dominic Crossan and William Lane Craig, titled Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? I'm interested, first of all, in why you agreed to do this debate. What was it about the subject or the players in this debate that made this worth your time? Uh, I agreed to do it because I'm writing a book on Christianity, and uh, I wanted to hear, uh, I wanted to, to hear live the, the tone and feel of a modern uh, skeptic. Now, in, in, in many senses, Dr. Crossan wasn't that. He kept saying that he believed in God, he believed in, in Christianity, so that uh, in that sense, I didn't quite get what I came looking for. Huh. What What is at stake in the issues that we're being dealt with tonight? Well, what is at um, stake really is uh, the, a, the continuation of um, the Christian commitment. Put it this way, if, if it were absolutely certain in everybody's mind that uh, Christ was divine, wouldn't they simply need for self-protection, if only that, to behave differently? <laughs> uh, and uh, under the circumstances, since people behave as they do, what they manage to do is simply rule out the Christian alternative. Now, a nice way to rule it out is to say that it wasn't really there in the first place. And uh, Dr. Crossan is, is there to reassure people who are skeptical uh, at that distance. If Dr. Crossan was here, I'm sure he would argue that he starts with a certain literary criticism, an approach, a methodology that has led him to certain conclusions. Uh, certainly, I don't think he would say that he has started trying to provide an excuse for ill behavior in society. Uh, what did you no, pick no, up? No, I'm not saying that's his motive. I'm saying yeah. that's the motive of his followers. That's why people are enthused by sure. his conclusions. Yeah, uh, put it this way. Anybody who says, I have here um, very concrete analysis that disproves the validity of the Christian religion, you get a lot of disciples, do you not? because a lot of people have a personal and also an ideological and even a religious stake for disbelief in Christianity. Huh. So it generates its own constituency. He said near the end of the debate that he doesn't know how you can win a debate like this. I mean, did you sense that there was a clear winner in this debate tonight? Uh, no, there wasn't, uh, except that the tug of uh, modern knowledge about Christianity uh, Size with Craig, not with Crossan. That is to say, if uh, if it were established that Christ didn't rise, that would be a front page story. As it is, uh, it gets occasional mention, you know, in in, in odd news magazines, uh, the the Jesus uh, seminar people. Uh, so in that sense, he couldn't uh, he couldn't hope to prevail. What the most that he could hope to do is to stir doubt, and uh, except to the extent that people sometimes, as I said tonight yielding to a restive intelligence, uh, entertain doubts that are not always hygienic, uh, he, he, he would not, I say, have made any headway. You 
asked him a question, somewhat in humor, but I think somewhat seriously. Why are you here? I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, of the political phrase that we're both accustomed to, the big tent. Is the tent big enough? And in, in looking at Roman Catholicism and at Dominic Crossan and asking how big is the tent of Roman Catholicism and how does Dominic Crossan fit? Well, that was very curious because you will remember <laughs> that in his closing statement he said that uh, the end of the world, as far as he was concerned, uh, 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 meaning what he would most approve is a situation in which liberal Christians can speak to conservative Christians. Well, my answer to that is uh, I don't think the word Christian can be contained in a definition that excludes Christ as divine. The, uh, the ethical culture people or, or, or the Unitarians don't consider themselves Christians, uh, and, and nor are they. Now, this doesn't mean that they're not very nice people and that we don't welcome the fact that they have a faith in their particular uh, doctrines, but they're not Christians. Now, the, the, the trouble with, with uh, welcoming an amalgamation of a kind that would include Cross and, and Craig, it becomes meaningless. There's, no, there's nothing in between Christ's divinity or non-divinity. He is either divine or he is not divine. Crossan would argue, I think, that he, again, is committed to a certain literary criticism, a certain methodology. It's the type that I was exposed to at Harvard Divinity School. And anybody in, in the major liberal divinity schools today is being exposed to this. And that he has simply followed the logic of the, that methodology. As a matter of fact, in his concluding comments tonight, he said, I have simply applied this methodology fully. I have applied it not only to the words of Jesus and to the deeds of Jesus, but to no. the resurrection of Jesus and to the yeah. articles of faith. In the he, he can't get away with it. Look, a method, methodology is, is simply uh, a structural method by which one proceeds. But Craig nailed him on that because he said there is no structural method by which Crossan has proceeded except that he is a naturalist and that he disbelieves the four principal historical validations of the resurrection of Christ. Having rejected those, all he becomes is a romancer. He, he gives us a way to acknowledge uh, the existence of Christ, non-divine, and do away with the resurrection. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's playing games. Uh, however, however gifted one is, and however resourceful one, one's imagination, it's simply playing games with the... Now, games... Are there to be played? If you want to, if you want to write another book saying that Kennedy was in fact not assassinated by Oswald, go ahead and do it. But uh, but spare me any sense of obligation to hear you out again. <laughs> when we uh, when we look at the issue of of miracles, uh, did you agree with Craig's assessment that Crossan in fact was a naturalist? And that his own definition, Crossan's own definition, that that the spiritual only works through the natural, seemed to me to be a difficult way of describing yeah, the supernatural. He really had, he tried to have it both ways. What he said was that uh, uh, God exists. Uh, however, God confines himself to working through the natural order, i.e., he does not intervene. I asked him, is God capable of intervening? He had, he had a tough time with that, because if he said yes, he was capable, then he would have to tell us why he never chose to intervene. So as I say, he, there, there again he was having a, a, a... If you define God as that which exists, whatever it is, then we all believe in God, because something exists. 
uh, winds and stars and uh, the aurora borealis are all there, and uh, and uh, simply to, to simply to affirm a belief in God because of that doesn't really get us very far theologically, does it? I'd like to get to the issue of certitude, which is one of the issues that you were raising tonight as well. I, it's almost as if you are saying that if a person uh, wandered off the street and heard this debate tonight and they were a reasonable and reasonably intelligent person, they would be compelled by the nature of this debate anyway to believe that Jesus was a historical person. He did rise no. from the dead. No, they wouldn't. Because tonight it wasn't comprehensive enough. There's no way in which you can say to somebody, listen in for three hours to anything and, and, uh, and, and become a Christian. Convert. But is it your belief that, in fact, if given enough time, that we are concluding based on the fact that, that the majority of scholars agree that Jesus was buried in Joseph Aramea's grave, that Jesus, uh, that there was an empty tomb, that, you know, we went through the, the line of argument that William Lane Craig raised. I mean, would we then start concluding that we are reaching a point where the resurrection is is uh, is verifiable and provable in, in such a way that it ought to be compelling to any reasonable person to believe it? Well, uh, yes, except that human nature sets up certain resistances which aren't necessarily rational. Uh, if if we take the four propositions of Craig, uh, uh, the four statements where you know, that he was buried uh, and he. he, he, he we know where he was buried. We know that he wasn't there the next day. He was seen by other people. And uh, the whole experience was validated by his apostles. Then you say, well, i got problems if, if I don't believe in Christ. However, a lot of people don't. The Jews don't believe in him. The uh, Islam doesn't believe in him. Pagans don't believe in him. So therefore, it's, we, we can't simply say, by pointing to these historical data, you can verify uh, the the resurrection. There is an element there of whatever you want to call it. But now, are you dealing in natural philosophy or are you dealing in in, uh, uh, in sacred uh, natural theology or sacred theology? Well, there's there's that admixture of the two. Mortimer Adler has written very interesting on this question. When we look at one of the major issues really tonight, which was in the nature of Christianity itself. Can one separate the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith? Well, what did you make of that dynamic in tonight's discussion? Well, I, I made of that that uh, Crossan is urging the position that uh, the the Christ of um, Christianity, the the risen Christ, the the divine Christ, uh, he doesn't necessarily want to impeach. But he wants to tell us, as a scholar, that uh, there are some, certain sundering differences between that Christ and the Christ that he, as a theological historian, has identified. Because that particular one didn't rise, didn't didn't perform miracles, etc., etc. Now, one is entitled to ask the question: Why does he not confront uh, the notion that uh, Christians? don't want to persevere with a religion, the foundation stone of which has been overturned 
If Paul said it, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in, in vain. But he, he, he seems to be saying it's a cozy and useful faith. It inspires a lot of people. So other than telling people that this, revealing to them that there's no reason to believe in Christ, <laughs> uh, I urge them to, to continue. Did you feel that Crossan raised any serious questions that do demand a better response than they received tonight? No. You didn't? No, I didn't, no. And uh, uh, no, I'm not a theologian, but... Uh, 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 Craig uh, mentioned what uh, half dozen, eight, eight nine, or ten uh, uh, scholars who, surveying the same evidence, come to different conclusions from Crossan. So I have I have no reason at all to suppose that uh, his is other than uh, uh, idiosyncratic reading uh, of the gospel and of historical evidence. Was there any sense in which you thought that what we had tonight was someone who is by nature, gift, temperament? and experience a debater, a William Lane Craig, no. and someone who is by nature a scholar, a researcher, a student, and not a debater in, in Crossan, and therefore we had a lopsided debate by virtue of, of the skills of the debaters themselves. Uh, no, no, I didn't, I didn't feel that. I think that, uh, uh, that uh, the situation called for the exercise of polemical skills polemical skills of making war on, on your position. But since Craig was talking from an established understanding, he had, uh, uh, he had uh, a, a, a more destructive role than Crossan, who was telling people, in many cases, things they had never heard before. Mm -hmm. So that, therefore, he, he, he therefore was more... Uh, 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 he, he therefore had a different mandate. His mandate was to explain... Uh, odd conclusions that he has reached, uh, and uh, and the mission of Craig was to say, here's what you're about, here's what you're about to hear, and here's why it's not so. Uh huh. You were saying earlier that when I said it was kind of an interesting debate, you said there was really no thunder. No. I mean, what would you have thought might have happened in a debate of this sort on this subject? Well, you know, anybody who has read that some of the great uh, exchanges, uh, in, even in this century, in, involving people like Henry Mencken or, or uh, um, William Lloyd Garrison or, or uh, any of you, uh, Mark Twain, they put an awful lot of fire into into what they said. Uh, uh, not not only thunder in the sense of brimstone, but yeah. thunder in the sense of a total uh, devotion and commitment to your position. I mean, Fulton Sheen uh, uh, would have uh, used a certain amount of, of, of thunder, civil thunder, but thunderous. Nevertheless. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, when you, when you look at, at Crossan, one of the reasons I, I think we didn't see that kind of thunder was while he is taking a radical position, which for most of us leads us to a conclusion that would put us outside the faith, he is taking that radical position and then concluding by saying, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, I'm liberal, you're conservative, and, and we can all get along and it's good that we do. So by his own kind of predisposition, he's, he's arguing that, that this is really important stuff, but not so important that it keeps us all from fellowshipping as Christians. It doesn't work, because <laughs> Craig is correct. Either Christ was a blasphemer or he was divine. And I don't want to worship a blasphemer. And I think it unreasonable for Crossan to expect that I should want to do so. So to the extent that he sustains his thesis, he excommunicates 
the entire Christian community. I, I still go back to my impression tonight, and I predicted this going into this. On the way here, we just had a guest from Germany and a guest from France. They were both in our home at the same time, and watching the two of them communicate was very interesting, as you can imagine. And I said to my wife, I feel like what we're going to see tonight is one person who speaks German and the other speaks French. Uh, Crossing is essentially in a, in a very narrow field of New Testament scholarship using a certain methodology. Uh, Craig, on the other hand, is a philosopher and a theologian. They really do speak different languages. They're on different playing fields. And in a certain sense, we never connected the fields tonight. Well, I don't think that's true. The, uh, <clears throat> for instance, uh, how to uh, interpret the resurrection in the light of Jewish um, thought. Uh, there was a very interesting, and I thought a valuable exchange between the two. And they, they, they were both talking there as theological historians. But uh, 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 it, it is true that uh, there wasn't uh, an engagement in the sense that you speak of it. This is in part because <clears throat> the, uh, the contributions of Dr. Crossan are, as I say, modernist and unfamiliar. Suppose I said to you now, okay, we're going to have a debate tomorrow for two hours and on the question uh, uh, was Lincoln killed? You say, what? I say, yeah, that's what I have. I, have, I know somebody, a scholar, who thinks that Lincoln's death was fate. Mm -hmm. He was taken out of the way and then he went to Brazil or whatever. Now, it would be hard to have a debate on that subject because the person who upheld the fact that Lincoln was not assassinated would be simply uh, postulating a whole series of connections and coincidences, this, that, and the other, which people listen to and don't have really a chance to comprehend in the sense of uh, that they might comprehend the question, who killed Kennedy? Yeah. Since books are written about that and movies are still, so you can study that question and then have a debate. But you could have had an evangelical who uses the literary, literary critical method debating Crossan and that, that evangelical New Testament scholar, a Raymond Brown from the Catholic tradition, could have, using the same methodology that Crossan demonstrated why his conclusions are incorrect based on the text itself. And, and what we had tonight was theological and philosophical yeah. uh, argumentation on the one hand, and on the other hand, some conclusions without much understanding of the methodology that reached those conclusions. And, and Craig strategically chose to keep the, the issue on these theological presuppositions that he started the debate with, and really not to get into the, the methodol methodological issues that were driving Crossan's argument. Uh, well, he, he gave the reasons for not doing so, but didn't do so. That, that's correct. Uh, but um, there was only a touch towards the end of the, um, of the Craig uh, final statement of a, a straightforward appeal to the uh, importance of the faith. He said as a young man, he, um, he beheld Christ and became a Christian, and that has been the dominant influence in, in his life. He, he let that out, but there was there was no sense that this, the evening, in the, in this evening of, a, of, of the preacher, the evangelist, who wants to communicate his faith rather than merely to show you how to cope with uh, the skeptic. Hmm. Thank you for being with us. Nice to talk to you.
Thanks for listening to Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? For more information on Dr. Craig's audio program, Reasonable Faith, call Turner Walensky Publishing at 1-800-737-7767. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.